Hi, this is Patricia. And this is Christina. And this is What They're Worth. A podcast exposing the truths of everyday people who are willing to enter the beautiful mess of foster care and adoption. We're glad you're here. Hello, friends. Happy February. It's been a little while, but we're back. And we are so excited to share with you our first ever long-distance interview guest, April. April lives in New York, and her apartment is super cute and trendy, by the way. Totally jealous. Um, But she comes to us with an encouraging message to share on loving others, especially in foster care and adoption. She touches on searching for her birth family. Y'all will really want to listen to this. Transracial adoption and her experiences as an adoptee. We felt refreshed and convicted at the end of this interview, and we hope this does the same for you. Hope you enjoy. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself um, for our listeners. Sure, sure. So uh, I was transracially adopted um, after a short time in foster care. My my um, mother of origin, or also known as birth mother, um, had three children had been married, was divorced and unplanned pregnancy from all the pieces that I can um, dig up and um, ultimately decided to relinquish uh, over the course of several months. So I ended up in foster care for a time in temporary foster care. And then I went to a foster to adopt placement. And that placement is where I stayed and was adopted the Dinwiddie family in, um, in Rhode Island. So, you know, like, like at some point, I, I'm sure my parents told me that I was adopted. They told me they told me, but I don't remember that. I just always remember mm-hmm. knowing. And I think it's always so genius when I hear families tell me, oh, like, or more importantly, I hear a young person or a grown up say, I don't remember being told because that means that it wasn't this like, oh, we're going to sit down and tell you you're adopted now. Um, mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a more organic process. So my whole life I knew I was adopted. My siblings, I have siblings um, by my family of experience, my adoptive family, three older, two brothers and a sister. So I'm the youngest of that um, sibling group. And, you know, basically it was, you know, I was raised no different than my white siblings. And um, my parents were given little to no encouragement and certainly no tools to help manage those differences of race and culture Mm -hmm. and, and really even class when you come down to it. So this was something that we were sort of like, like sort of blind leading the blind. Um, and that contributed to a lot of challenges that, you know, manifested in different ways. And, um, at the end of the day, I think what they didn't give me in my racial identity, what they couldn't provide for me, they provided for me in a solid foundation of, of love and, um, it just encouragement, especially my mom, that allowed me to sort of do some of that work on my own, mm-hmm. um, both the adoption identity work and the racial identity work. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's it's um you know it's it's kind of the usual fare when in and around the you know the real closed adoption era where every everything was closed and sealed at the at the end of the finalization and you were basically like a new person being adopted into this family name change, you know, there was nothing to see here before. And it's almost like, here's your new life. So it's changed now, but, um, 
you know, my experience has been one of navigating that, you know, and trying to figure out my identity, um, and trying to move through life and, and be, you know, a student and a, uh, you know, a part of, you know, have friends and do all these things and work. And so it's just some, some added, some added stuff that comes along with it. Can you talk about your journey through trying to figure some of that out and like how you ended up now being a voice, like how mm. you got, cause you know, I know a lot of people, they don't ever get there like adoptees, a lot of them continue to like, how did you kind of come full circle and what's, what is motivating you now to like really be this voice for it? Hmm. It's a great question. The way I would answer that is that it was kind of selfish in a way and, and almost urgent for me in my journey of self-identity. Um, I, I think I always knew I would search. I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't have right. the words for it as a kid. I didn't have the words for it as a teen. I didn't have the words for it um, as a young adult. I think when I decided to take some action around searching, it was like, um, it was just another step to take. It wasn't like, um, I just always knew I would do it. So, you know, it, it, and it wasn't one of those things where I was asking permission from anyone. I was just like, I'm doing this. I want you to know. I would tell my parents, they're like, okay, we'll tell you everything we know. And then, um, so it was through the search process where I started to figure out that I, I, I suppose I assumed it wasn't going to be easy, but I didn't estimate how difficult it would be to get information mm -hmm. about me. When I went to the records department in Massachusetts and they told me, oh yeah, we have your file. Oh yeah, there's a baby girl born on this day with your birth name, but I can't give you this <laughs> file. And it's like, oh, so it like slowly but surely started to dawn on me that this was a bit of a matrix that I hadn't anticipated. Um, and, you know, my parents had always been fairly open, right? Never talked about adoption, but they were open to my questions that, that I would ask rarely. And when I decided to search, they were like, cool. Like, so they didn't, they didn't ever say, oh, you might not be able to get information. Or How old were you when you started to really look? In my mid twenties, Continue. my mid to late twenties. No, in my mid twenties, so it's good for context. Um, so, you know, not getting information and then all of a sudden getting some information by something um, called a search angel. These were volunteers. They still exist today, although I don't know many of them now, but they were um, people volunteering, usually members of the extended family of adoption, birth parents, um, adopted persons who would help search almost like little private investigators. And they would do it at a low, low bono or pro bono. They didn't charge you or they charged you very little. So I got an address and I got some information. And so I was off to the races, right? And I did get my non-identifying information from the agencies and from the state, which gave, gave me a lot of information, but still didn't lead me to like a final destination. So when I, when I found the piece of information from the search angel, that led me to a house in Newport, Rhode Island, which led me to people that actually had known my birth mother, which led me to her, which led me to connect with her. The easy part really was the, the finding her, the hard part, the impossible part was making a connection to her. Um, I was not a planned pregnancy. 
my um, birth mother, Helen, had um, shared with me in a, in a not so soft way that she had been um, sexually assaulted. And that's how my birth came to be. And refused to meet me, refused to have any contact with me and basically said, you, you, you should also not have any contact with my family. No one knew about you. Um, so it was that it was then in that like deep, like deep pain, like deep, more pain than I could ever even articulate. And I think when we, when we, when we talk a little bit about love, it's like that, that moment when you realized that narrative of love may not have been actually true. You know, um, when someone rejects you a second time, when your what your parents see you as this grown adult who everybody should love. Um, and most certainly the woman who gave birth to you. And when that is like, not doesn't happen. So that is what ultimately motivated me to Mm -hmm. seek community and self care and in seeking community and self care, I sort of married that. So I had a, found a community of adopted folks through a search and reunion group. The group wasn't for me, but the people in it were. So mm-hmm. I collected a few of those folks. And then I'd already been doing mentoring through um, my marketing work at Kenneth Cole and leading our, our little mentoring squad. And I had noticed that a lot of the young people who were mentoring at-risk, vulnerable youth had, mm-hmm. had duly engaged um, in either criminal justice and or child welfare. Um, and then of course they were at risk in their education and they were, you know, um, most had IEPs and such. Mm -hmm. So I, I noticed that there was this family disconnect happening within these young people's lives. And the idea of a mentoring program or adopted adults, mentoring youth and foster care came to be, and that's, has been many years. And that is where I think I started to find my voice it was out of a, of, of, of the, of the real kind of letting the pain come and then turning that pain into something that wasn't going to land and make, take root in my body. It was going to have to get out because I wouldn't have, I wouldn't survive. I wouldn't have survived. Like it's it's really (laughs) simple. It's like, did I want to live or did I want to die? And I was like, I saw it at that. I mean, I've never contemplated suicide and, and, and I've never really thought of it as a, as an actionable element, but it was like, it was survival or not survival. Right. Like that's really what it came down to. And I wanted to survive. And and then that became a pathway to being more wow. of a voice yeah. in the community. That in itself is so profound. I, do you feel like a lot of people numb when they get there? Like they just try to numb out? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, <laughs> okay. I'm not going to go all researchy on this, but like there's, there's, a, there's enough evidence out there that will show you that there's a propensity for those of us who have experienced early childhood trauma, uh, mm-hmm. right. to yeah. have addiction issues right, and mental health issues and educational, you know, um, elements of, 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 of distraction and things of that nature. So it's not, outside of the realm of possibility that people will, you know, self-soothe with Or even just avoiding it altogether. Like even um, because, I mean, I know a lot of people who, that are adopted that don't want to pursue, which nothing wrong with that, right? But you kind of wonder, you know, the different um, sides of that. This is very interesting. And every, every, right. 
everybody has a different experience. And, you know, it's that, I think, when you have to honor that, not everybody is going to have the same experience. Um, but again, there's there's research out there that will will show you um, some of what is 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 part of the experience with data and numbers to back up some of these some of these theories. And and it's true that and and people come into their like like in anything people come into whatever mm-hmm. place of the experience they come into. It, you know, there's all <laughs> kinds of like being woke or not woke in, mm-hmm. in this experience but, and attached to it or not. I mean, it, this also has a lot to do with, you know, um, a lot of ways we as adopted people, you know, yeah. are, are often protecting grownups and adults, the ones we love and that adopt us. We, we don't want to rock. Some of us don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to ask too many questions. We don't want to go down this path because we love you. And we, we, we sort of in our bodies, we know that we're all feeling it, you know, um, even if we can't say it. So there's a lot of reasons why people take whatever action or non-action they do, um, depending on a lot, so many, How so many different factors. How do you foster parents then in, in that life. narrative? Um, kind of like, or adoptive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or adoptive about, especially if they, if, you know, explaining to those children, explaining to children why they are where they are. Like you said, your parents, I think that's really common. And I think, I mean, gosh, anybody who's fostering may say that or adopting, you know, just in light of not knowing what else to say, what would you suggest or where would you like a place to start for them in conversing with their children? There's a couple of things. One is my hope would be that in the process of even removal of children from abuseful, abuse and neglectful situations where they're not safe physically, right? Or emotionally or psychologically. I would hope within that process and the process of voluntary relinquishment, generally easier with voluntary relinquishment to get some of this information. There's so much in open adoption today where we can and we're encouraged to share. And I would hope that the starting place is that you actually get some information. And so that you're not, you know, because my parents never had a conversation with my birth mother and they were doing it all through a social worker, they had to, they were basically getting an interpretation of whatever. And, and, and quite frankly, a lot of times in that matrix, I feel like professionals, many of them with good intentions created a narrative and put that narrative forth as a way to just sort of make it, pretty easier. you like, make it easier for folks. But at the end of the day, it, it, it just make it just seems to make perfect sense to, to, to find out what the circumstances are, even if they're the, the hardest circumstances ever, because even within that, there's probably some kind of a, of a love type of narrative in that so that age appropriately, you can share that there, that the family of origin had real challenges real challenges. Now, sadly, we actually know what real challenges look like in the world today because we have phones, we have the TV, we have Mm -hmm. the internet, we have all these things that show us what real challenge looks like and allows for us on some level to say, do you know about this over here? Well, well, perhaps this is kind of what was happening in your family, which made it really difficult for them to properly care for you. They loved Mm -hmm. you. There was a, there was a center of love. So you don't take love out of it especially if you know that there was love, because you may know, right? You may know birth mom or birth dad or extended family members that say, hey, look, we love this child. We love this baby. There, there's, just, there's just no way 
that this is going to work for us. And, and, and even if they have a say in it, so there's, there's a way to sort of, I think, extrapolate the facts and the reality and age appropriately share that with, with a child right alongside this idea that there was love in the underpinning and that it it's complicated and it's challenging, but you know, I, I just think when we try to mask it with in misinformation or lack of information or just try to make it too simple. <laughs> yeah. Um, kids just tune into that. They're like, hmm, really? Is that really, really what happened? Right. So I think it's a great question. And, and it's one that everybody's always going to struggle with because I mean, I think just from a, from a real sort of human center of gravity, we just don't like the idea that families of origin don't take care of their kids. We don't like, it doesn't feel good. Love is not as um, clear cut as the media is always trying to portray it. And neither are people, you know, people are not bad or good, you know? And I I know that that's something I'm trying to instill in my boys. I, I, I see them wrestling between she's good or she's bad, you know? And it's like, she's just human. You know, there's just a human being there and and we all have good and bad parts of us. And some of us are able to beat our bad, you know, (laughs) and we're able to win over it. And some of us are not. And some of that is our doing and some of that is beyond us, you know, and all of it in between. Um, But then you have the narrative and adoption that love is all you need. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Heals, which it does. Um, <laughs> but it's not it. Yeah. So you have all of that going hmm. on when no. we talk about, you know, and even sometimes no, like, can no. you love a child? Like, that's the question you see, right? Like, do you have, can you love? I'm like, who's going to be like, no, mm-hmm. I can't love a child, mm-hmm. you know, but it's so much more. Yeah. There's so much in it. It's loaded, right? It's loaded. And Well, first of all, I, I always try to take adoption and, and pull it back to like, other relationships we already have that we're <laughs> used to and, and sometimes right. good at and sometimes not. And in-laws mm-hmm. are a great example, right? It's like you wouldn't know your in-laws, probably. You wouldn't be friends with them. You probably wouldn't even know them. You certainly may not love them or be close to them, but there's someone in between you and them, your mate, your partner, your, you know, your love that you will make the extended effort for because you love that person so much. You want that relationship to work. They don't, they don't, they're not biologically connected to you. You wouldn't probably know them otherwise. That's how I think it starts with this idea of instead of the competing interests of adults with foster parents, adoptive parents, parents of origin, birth parents, instead of this contentious competing interests, like why wouldn't you see it just as an extension of family? That's really complicated. Cause we all have those complicated relatives, right? In our life, you're like uncle Joey, man, he's a tough one, but we love him. Or we don't, we don't, we have to manage our time with them because he's not bad. You know, he, he's not, you're not a bad person. And inherently there's this idea of mm-hmm. the parent, the good parents are the ones who adopt or foster and the bad parents are the one who don't keep their kids or have their kids removed from them. That's just not true. Right. So be, because then you, you navigate into this of like, okay, so the person created by those people, right. By the people, the family of origin, Be bad. Mm-hmm. if they're bad, then that person well, unfortunately, believe that they're bad, right? There's a good chance of that happening if you don't 
work against that, right? And this idea too of 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 you know love as a center of gravity, which I believe that it is. Well, what does love really look like, right? Like, and and this I have a real hard time with, but my dad will say over and over again, and he, he believes it in his heart. You know, we just don't see. I don't see color, April. Well, when he says that, it just it's, it's like he doesn't see me, and that means he's he can't love me for me if he doesn't see me fully, right? So it's like love is is not a small thing, and really loving someone, really loving them. So I, I think, yeah, we can say you know love is enough, but it's a deep and evolved and messy and ridiculously challenging kind of love that you have to create that includes your child's family of origin Mm -hmm. that includes people you may never have thought you would have to interact with and and really loving your kid means that you're gonna go into the deep dark water for yourself too and like What's triggering me? What does love look like for me? What didn't I get from my parents? So this idea of grownups and parents taking on that challenge as well on behalf of their kid is like, is part of it too, because so often I think when a parent is challenged, Preach. it has to do with some of their early childhood mm-hmm. experiences and how they were loved. So, I mean, it's all, you know, it's all, it's all connected. And, and, and I feel like as hard as that is to, for all of us as individuals to do, you know, I think regardless of family structure today, young people and children are, are demanding in some ways, urgently asking to be loved in a different way than they were generations before. And um, in adoption and foster care, there's no turning away from that urgency of that elevated kind of deep um, often scary kind of love that really means you're like dropping it all. You're like vulnerable as all get out in order to love yeah. that, that person. And I that think you, like you said, like um, authentically are, are to parent. and not hiding behind the storylines that might feel easier to give. I mean, I, I don't have adoption in my immediate family, but yeah. I had addiction in my family and I, in my experience, um, the oldest child protected, attempted to protect my younger sister from seeing the, what was going on in the family. Mm. And I effectively did that, um, until she figured it out. And I now am like, I made that way harder on her because now she was like grown almost, but had no skills to deal where me, I like grew up with it and I kind of adapted to deal, you know, and she didn't because I was protecting her. Um, and I feel like that's what a lot of people do mm. as in parenting is, is that. And then we're like, oh, well, when they're an adult, they'll be old enough, but then they're on their own. And, and they're dealing with stuff. They don't have any practice because they were sheltered in a sense by our yeah. adoptive or foster parents love, which is good, but it's not, um, right. you know, it's not the full truth of what happened in their lives. And so, but then they don't have, and then they're on their own. You know what I mean? They've never experienced these feelings or they've been trying to hide them, whatever. And now they have to deal with them pretty much. Maybe they're not in the house anymore. They're not even around the love to kind of be protective of them. 
Um, and I can totally see that. Um, so I try and I'm like, maybe I'm too blunt sometimes because I'm like, mm. I'm afraid of that. You know what I mean? I'm like, well, if you're going to struggle, I'd rather you struggle while I'm here, mm. at least not be on your own struggling with it because it's not, it's not easier to hear when you're older, really. Yeah, It's not. I think that's a classic mistake just in parenting in general. It's like, oh, when they're older, when they're older, (laughs) um, they're not ready. And it's like, oftentimes that's a grown-up's way of being not ready. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's classic and it's, it's so, it's like about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? You're like, oh, it's too early. It's too soon. And, and, and I think, and, and and what, so (laughs) my podcast, which um, maybe, you know, of the, what adoption, what adoption can teach the world is the tagline, right? Is, the, is like really yes. be, adoption and foster care sort of forces you to have these deeper conversations sooner. And I think like that that's just a gateway for other families. Like we, they should be parenting, you know, how, how no many foster way. adoptive parents are, <laughs> yes, the, or the good are. ones, I would say, sorry, there are good ones and bad ones. I hate to break it to the world, but so, and I've seen it all, um, that, that when, when, when it's yeah, <laughs> when parents are parenting not perfectly because it's not that's that's unrealistic. When they're navigating adoption and foster care as parents, and they're going into the deep water and they're and they're getting uncomfortable early. It's like that's how you do it. And then when you when that happens, you're like, oh my gosh, there's so many parents that aren't parenting kids through adoption and foster care that should do this too. You know, it's like. It's just, it's like a, I don't know. I, I, I found that switching it up a little bit and empowering these, these experiences and, and using them as fuel to like share is, is kind of the, the, the switch up that needed to happen. When you got that wake up call, the idea that what, what mm-hmm. felt like to you, mm-hmm. my mom really didn't love me and didn't want me. And that is, might be closer to the truth for a lot mm-hmm. of kids you know, yeah. that is some people's story right. or even that they loved me, but they didn't love me enough. You know, right. that, that something else was more important or more valuable. How, how mm-hmm. did you heal from that? Because I think a lot of people mm-hmm. know their kids are there or some, maybe some people listening are those people. Mm. What, I mean, how can people heal? What, what did that look like for you? Because that's a hard yeah. bullet to bite. Well, I think first and foremost, I had a soft landing with my, my family, my, you know, my sister, my mother, um, other family members that just held me. And, you know, right when I needed her the most, my adoptive mom really was like, you know, I always held such a soft, warm place in my heart for my birth mother, Helen, because I, you're an extension of her and I, and, but when she rejected me and my mom was like a mama bear, like what, you know, like just as you would want a mother to protect you at the same time, what's so interesting about this is it, I didn't want any member right, of my family right. to hate her because it was almost like an ex-boyfriend that you might get back together with because had she called me and said, Hey April, I, I'd love to meet you. I would have been on the next plane. I wouldn't have even had- skip to beat. Now at the same time, the rejection was so gut-wrenching. I often look at it as like how I held love, even romantic love before I found her and she rejected me and how I held it 
after I found her and she rejected me. I became much more, I've never been, I've never shied away from romantic love. I've never been like, I'm not lovable. There's no way. I've always been hope. I'm that hopeful romantic person that like always believes that love is possible. Um, but I think I became more guarded in my, the almost like the practical interactions of love and showing and, and, and the, the transactional pieces like the, um, like when someone doesn't pick up their phone or when goodbyes, even goodbyes, when I know someone is, I'm going to see them tomorrow. There's like an anxiety that like, that's rooted in me that like maybe, maybe they're gone when they walk out that door, maybe they're wow. gone for good because there's just that there was just that, that vortex of believing something so deeply in your, in your soul and your body and your mind and your heart, having that mm-hmm. come back around in real time in real life. And that having not to be true, any of it really, in terms of like the feelings that I, I like that, that I think she had for me. And then it was like, well, well, wait, like, is my, is my whole idea of love kind of screwy? Like, is, does it, is it really what I think it is? And again, just practically speaking, it's like, um, yeah, like it's, it's anxiety provoking. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting. And just getting a hold of it has been really profound for me in terms of being able to say it out loud, like being able to say like, it's important for me. Mm-hmm. You know, these things are really important for me, like dating men of color, really important to me. Right. doesn't mean I don't date white guys. It just means that I feel like men of color really see me. I spent the better part of my life feeling unseen by many of the people around me, including, you know, men around me. And, and when seen, it wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. a good thing. It was more like a, Hmm and or somewhat exotic and a little inappropriate, or, you know, there were different ways that this all manifested. So it's like, you know, I, if I'm not dating a man of color, I'm dating someone who is really connected to as much as a, a person who's not of color can to those kinds of experiences. So, you know, these things, but it, getting in touch with it, writing about it, talking about it, being open about it um, is part of the healing process and part of the like, just the loving myself enough to be vulnerable enough and to put it out there so that I'm not holding it all by myself without, you know, um, kind of the, 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 the soft edges that I need for people to, to bring, um, in relationships, family, friends, romantic, what have you. But because we now know that archives exist of our behaviors, whether we like it or not, some of them are more private, some of them are public. I think we're being, I think we're being forced to look back, deal with whatever we need to deal with so that we can move forward. I feel like there's a moment in time that's happening that is like, if, if, if you're paying attention to all these other things that we see in the world, we might want to do a little bit of an assessment and then look forward and say, okay, so what is like, if I broke down the year, what are the months are my most triggering? Like, what are the hardest months of the year for me? What does that look like in relationship to my family, my work? my life, my, my, my well-being, like, and then also I think we have to just do so much better in helping families stay together. You know, I just think like, what, what more can we do? Yeah. What more can you do? And, and to adopt the, you know, look, one of the things I say all the time is like, you know, there's all these crowdfunding sites where, you know, for fees for adoption, that's all well and good. Like, look, I can't, we can't be mad at anything that, you know, uses technology that's 
common that's, you know, fine. Okay. You know, I get it. But I'm always like, well, can't you make one of the options to adopt the whole family? Not just the kid. Like, you know, and there might be people that actually would do that. We're human beings. Part of our existence uh, to being here together means we've got to continue to have children and raise them. And, and so like, I'm not mad at any of that. I just feel like it need not be a commodification. It need not be a possession. Possession. It need not be like this idea of competing interests. I, I think about divorce and remarriage. I think about the couples I see that, that do co-parenting really well. And then I see the ones that don't. And I think about that in terms of how do you extend this parenting idea through adoption and foster care, where there are clear parents and caregivers that are in charge. You're in charge. You're the legal guardian. You are legally this, this young person's child's parent. doesn't mean that you can't have an extended family around you of people that pitch in and, and have influence and have diversity in your family and different pieces. That's harder on some level, right? Because sometimes you want to keep things really tight and it's it. But at the end of the day, we, we almost it, it almost doesn't feel like there's a choice in adoption of foster care. You, you almost have to have that that sensibility and that that openness to say, look, like if you're part of my kid biologically, I'm gonna want to know you or at least try to tether to you, and not just when the kid's 18 or da da da. Like relationship, really, and, and you talk about love and relationships creating a loving, at least kind relationship minus the kid during the early stages of this, if there are some real serious, heavy complications, that's your relationship to build. Like, you know, so many times I'll hear parents like, oh, you know, yeah, when they're ready, you know, when they're 18, we'll do it. I'm like, nah, you got to actually be ready before then because you don't want to at 18, try to start to find and put the pieces together. You want to have the pieces together. You want to be able to share, you know, I have, a, I have a situation that I know my friends, you know, adopted their daughter doesn't really have interest in her family of origin, but her, the, the mom of origin really wants a connection. So birth mom and adoptive mom are friends right? and their adoptive mom's very clear. Like she's not ready. She's not interested. I'm, I'm putting it out there. I'm telling her I'm seeing you that I'm here. She doesn't want to come. I'm not going to force it but I'm here, let's you and I have this. So that relationship will always be there right. for that child when she wants it and when she's ready and when the, when she wants the door open. It's not like you have to re, you have to create it, you know, in a, in a frenzy. So that's love. That's what love looks like. And that's what like love mm-hmm. indirectly placed on your child looks like when you're just like, you're doing it, you're in it. You're, you're doing your best to make a relationship with someone you barely know and someone that you probably wouldn't know otherwise. And that, and that's really, that's love. Do you have any recommended resources, books, other podcasts? You know, I have to say that I've, I've kind of moved away from adoption focused materials in a way. Um, but I like adoptees on it's a podcast that I like a lot. I find myself leaning harder into like on being Krista Tippett, um, her podcast. I find myself listening to more, um, like NPR's code switch, like places that speak to like life experiences and different 
diverse ways of being in the world that really have nothing to do with adoption. I think that sometimes what happens with, I mean, look, there, there are some great, I, I want to, Joyce McGuire Pavo has a great book, The Family of Adoption, I want to say, or The Extended Family of Adoption. Like there's some great books, but I also feel like it's hard because they're not for every, like it, it's not exactly true for everybody, right? Like so Fostering Families Today has great articles. Um, and, um, Adoptive Families Magazine has really good things. Like some really focused um, Chronicle of Social Change has more of the, you know, the 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 advocacy and legislative stuff and the practice stuff. Um, I, feel, I find myself leaning more into sort of that more human experience side of things. Oprah's super cool fun conversations, you know, that's where I find myself. And look, I'm watching the heck out of This Is Us. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I'm leaning towards that because, you know, it's not perfect, but it's like there's a lot to talk about. And, you know, I'm around a lot of people, so I'm doing a camp. I'm working with a camp called Transracial Journeys this summer. I've been a couple of times already where, you know, families come who have adopted transracially for a few days of camp. Um, I'm doing school groups, you know, and adopt affinity groups in schools and doing parent groups and stuff and the podcast. So it's like, I feel like I'm almost, I'm my own little path. I'll tell people your, your info too, you, so they can find you. Yeah. Yeah. The podcast is born in June, raised in April on iTunes. You know, my birth mother named me June. My adoptive parents named me April. I'm born in October. So it's sort of a deconstruction of the calendar and a way in which to um, look at sort of everyday elements and even bigger sort of holiday type things that impact adoptive families in, in different ways. And I have my website, aprildinwitty.com and you can find me on social media, June and April and April Dinwitty and all that business. So yeah, people go do all that stuff. <laughs> well, we thank you so, so much yes. for coming and sharing tidbits of wisdom with yes. us. Your experience and insight is very different from anything that we've had. And so I know a lot of Thank you for coming on our little show and responding to me on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate it so much. All right.